that's just for a backup. We are on. Renu, how are you doing today? It's been a while, hasn't it? I love those glasses. I know. Is this the first this year? The first recording of Innovation Undercover in 2023. Yeah, you can tell we haven't recorded in a few times because I just talked over you, which I'm not want to do. So I'll try not to do that again. But I do like the way your glasses kind of match everything else, even the logo in that. I'm going to go this way in the upper left-hand corner yes. or upper right-hand corner. Yes. Anyway, and I would say you look if adorable. If you know me. Yeah, <laughs> I do know you, but go ahead. You know me that it's orchestrated this is I know, completely please. orchestrated i do find it hilarious though that like so what i've tried to do is i've tried to match my hair to the other color in the logo it seems to be working and all of us are wearing black shirts anyway enough of that who do we have with us today <laughs> we have deborah watkins who is the founder and ceo of carebridge international welcome deborah it's great to have you here thank you renu great to be here thank you michael and I owe, I owe Deborah a public apology as well. So why don't we do that? The last time we were supposed to record, I was having connectivity problems. So I probably ruined everybody's Friday or Thursday or whatever day that was. So publicly, I'm very sorry for that. Anyway, it's great to have you here. Not a problem. Not a problem. <laughs> I try not to create Actually, problems. we've Actually, we've been trying to record for some time, but then we had the hurricanes, oh, if you remember. Yes. Yeah, that was the <laughs> first <what>? disruption. <laughs> yes, that was the first interruption for recording. Well, well, that's a good segue because where are you, where are you based, Deborah? Uh, I'm in Sarasota, Florida, on the Gulf Coast, and we were literally 50 miles from Hurricane Ian. So wow. very close. Almost came here. <laughs> we lost electricity for a few days. That is not good at all. Can you give us a little bit more of your background just for some context as well? Sure. So I ha I'm a clinician. Um, I have a master of science in nursing and later went and uh, got an MP MBA master in public health from Brown University. And um, my background is um, was originally patient care. Then I got into um, group health and care management, and uh, that led me into the workers' compensation space, property and casualty, and looking at injuries and forecasting medical needs. You know, what are the medical needs of an individual given a certain type of injury over their lifetime? And so that's um, work I've done for many, many years in my career, working with insurance professionals. Where are you from originally? Are you originally from Florida as well? No, I'm originally from Virginia, uh, just outside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., Fairfax. I love it. I love it. Can you talk a little bit about this, how you get from patient care in, into insurance, if you don't mind? And, and what it means to come into this from that angle, right? Because a lot of people come into insurance, and it, Renu says this to me a lot, a lot of people kind of accidentally find themselves in the insurance industry. I feel like you that didn't happen to you, though. No, it, it really didn't. I, um, I, love, I love nursing. I love, um, I love healthcare. It's the passion that I have. 
And um, actually what happened for me was um, that over the course of my career, and actually I have a daughter who uh, had a stroke Oh, at nine no. years of age. Oh, no. And I had a lot of questions about what does this mean for her long-term? How do I provide for her needs long-term? Um, what is what is her life going to look like? And I actually um, carried that with me into my conversations with real injured workers. At that time, I was working for a large uh, carrier, insurance carrier. And because it was personal for me, I understood um, what that type of loss means to someone on a personal level. Um, it was personal for me in taking care of these injured workers. And the conversations that I had was very passionate about getting them back to work, trying to help them be as independent as possible and have a clear understanding of what their medical needs were for the long term. Um, and all of that background has contributed to um, the company that I built today. I'm just I'm just thinking because there's a company in Singapore called Doc Doc, right? And it was started by a couple, Grace and Cole Sersek. And you know, they said the same thing. The whole reason why they started this company was because their daughter had a very, very serious medical problem and they didn't know how to solve it. And they went out, they were not medical professionals like you were, but they went out and tried to find information on this and they found it really opaque, actually. And I'm curious if I mean, you were already in nursing and in patient care and already dealing with injured people. And then this thing happened as well. And I remember I've spoken to Cole a bunch of times, like you can't stop him from doing this because it is so personal for him. Is that same the same way for you? Do you know what I mean? Like once you have that experience, you almost have to keep pushing forward and then you understand how personal it is to other people as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. Um, because one of the thing, I think the... The real takeaway for me is when you have a child with a disability or a health issue that precludes them in some way from living your your idea of a normal life for them, right? And their idea of a normal life for them. And all of that is disrupted and you have to accept something different. It's difficult. And yet it's something that it's a process. You have to get through it. And I, I saw the same thing in injured workers who had serious enough injuries that in fact, they're going to have permanent impairments and they want desperately to have the life they used to have, but that life has changed. And how do you work through that acceptance and how do you provide the right kind of support to help that individual live as close to their dream of a normal life as possible. And so that is really the passion that, that would flow through me is my deep desire to help this individual that I'm working with in the carrier space to identify what is most important to them and what can we do to achieve that or get as close to that as possible? And for most of them, they do want to go back to work, right? Like that work is an identity. 
you know, what we do for a living and our skills are part of our identity. And when you lose that, it is, it's loss. It's a grief, it's grief and it's loss. And how do we, you know, how do we recover that as much as possible? So it, it does absolutely um, flow that personal experience and really understanding it into, into the claim, into the claim space. So I have a question, which is, do you not find your two passions a kind of asynchronous in time? And let me explain. The nursing is one where you you are asked to care and you give care and you see the benefits of giving care. Your product or your company is in workers' comp, which is the longest tail line, right? So the full claim cycle is anywhere between seven to 10 years. So how does your nurturing caregiving brain adjust to that? Or, or is that something that you thought about? And can technology help that? It can, uh, because when I started this journey, it's it's interesting because nurses who perform the, the work that I'm referring to, which is being able to forecast the medical needs uh, for a person over life expectancy, that's called life care planning. And it is a credential, it is a training involved um, and I wanted to understand how accurate are these forecasts that a nurse is putting together. And as you can imagine, most of that is really based on your a nurse's individual, as an individual, her education, her training, and her experience, right? His or her experience. And it's different. It makes it while there is a science, there's also a subjectivity. And so I wanted to understand, we had a staff of 50 nurses uh, in a previous company I worked for that I was that I was CEO at prior to CareBridge. And I wanted to see how accurate these forecasts were. I already knew that there was variability among clinicians because of their experience and um, had done a lot of work in terms of uh, corporate education to try and gain, create more consistency in those outcomes. But what I learned is that the nurses in comparing real claims, post-settlement, looking at medical records, uh, that there were definitely gaps in our inaccuracy by 30 to 40%. Right. Um, so we learned that the methodologies that we've been trained on as life care planners were not accurate, nor had they ever been measured before. It had never been measured. There was no empirical evidence that it was accurate. So that um, curiosity, I wanted to understand if using data intelligence to inform a clinician could drive a more accurate result? And the answer is, you know, here I am six years later, but actually the research and development began in 2010. <laughs> That's when I started this journey. 
um, that using data intelligence to inform a clinician absolutely drives accuracy. Um, and so that's been a very exciting for me to be able to bring this, this to the market. Um, data intelligence informing a clinician in order to produce a much more accurate, cleaner result and better outcomes for injured workers who want very much to, you know, be restored to their pre-injury state. How do physicians react to data intelligence? Because clearly it is substituting or it may be complementing some part of their gut, their experience, what their what their uh, teachers taught them. How do they react to that? I think, um, you know, the approach that we've taken to that is not to say that the data is 100% accurate in terms of not in terms of what I'm tr really trying to say is not to beat people over the head with the data, what the data says, but rather again, to use it to inform. So as an example, we might say to a physician who is recommending a spinal cord stimulator, which is very expensive for a particular patient for back pain, and the data will indicate based on the variables of this person and similar persons that the probability of that spinal cord stimulator is 12%, 12%. And yet we have a physician that's recommending a surgery, recommending this surgical procedure. And so how we approach it is we will notify, contact the physician, and we say, <clears throat> doctor, um, out of a data cohort of 2,351 similar patients like this patient that you're treating, the data shows there is a 12% probability of this spinal cord procedure. And we're not saying that your recommendations are incorrect we would like to know what's different about this patient that you believe that it's medically indicated. And what's very interesting about that is their responses are most often, oh, I'm not saying it's medically necessary. I'm just saying that it's a treatment option to anyone who continues to have you know, pain over time very different, very different. So, you know, the data does two things. It informs us that given a set of variables for a given person, um, what do you see in the, in the larger population? And does that make sense? But it also allows us to really clarify, you know, with the physicians, what, what are they actually saying? Right. Because if a physician has in this case, you know, the records say uh, recommending a spinal cord stimulator, uh, you know, what he just told us is, well, no, it's an option, but I don't, I'm not saying it's medically necessary, very different. So it also allows us to clarify that meaning in a record. Um, so it's been 
that's our approach uh, because there may be a reason. There may be something. There may be a variable that we are not aware of that would even change um, the prediction of the model. Can I jump in? This is so interesting to me. When you when you decided you were going to go to nursing school, right? Did you ever have get the sense that you were also going to turn into a data scientist? I love this idea that there's like, no, because there's a big gap between the time where you graduated from nursing school, right? I think it was in 2003. And then you went back and got your master's degree. And in the interim, so many things changed. And even between then and now, so much stuff has changed. We have so much more access to data, so much more ability to use data. And now it sounds almost like you're a data scientist in combination with being this. And I'm curious if you can answer that first. Like, is there a surprise in you as well where you're thinking, I didn't know I was going to be a data scientist. I thought I was just going to be a caregiver. <laughs> and here you are doing both. Do you oh. know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. No, it really is. Um, no, I could have never, never predicted that I would be uh, using data intelligence to inform, you know, clinicians. Um, but that being said, it's interesting because I had the fortunate opportunity to be engaged with technology early on in terms of being placed on teams that were um, you know, building software or helping to um, use uh, technology in some way to solve a clinical problem. And I would be involved as a clinician in requirements, right? So I'd been involved since the, uh, for quite some time in various projects. And so I think that actually helped, or at least it um you know, nursing, you use a lot of data anyway, like in nursing, nursing is a science, right? It's an art and it's a science. And um, you're, you're taught to look at research, a lot of research and be able to vet it and understand, you know, the legitimacy of certain types of care and treatment and understand sample sizes. And, you know, you learn statistics that helps so that you already have an appreciation for data and research. I think that um, for me, it just started with a curiosity of, you know, how accurate is this stuff? Because I could see that even among nurses, you know, you could have five nurses make five different predictions on medical care. Why is that? And is there a way to improve upon it? My brother's a neurosurgeon. When he was doing his residency at Emory in Atlanta, I went down to visit him once. It was a long time ago, probably 20 something years ago, right? And I remember walking around the hospital with him thinking, you know, if the Palm Pilot was just connected to other data sources in real time so that when you're doing your rounds, you actually had the data to make real time decisions based on real data, not just the stuff that's written on the chart per se. I mean, this is hard work, right? For caregivers, whether it's nurses that are providing care or doctors that are providing care. Now you have access to all this data. Have you seen that progression as well in the technology that are actually is actually in the hands of people and then how they can? Because you're right, five people could legitimately make five decisions that are completely different and all valid, right? It's not like one of them is completely wrong or or or, or done in bad faith, but now everybody has access to this data. Has that changed the way these decisions get made as well? 
There is. Um, in healthcare, that's been really exciting. You can, you've probably heard of it. There's a lot of what's called decision support models. And those have improved. Uh, you know, they started to evolve and improve. Um, decision support tools are used in healthcare. They're used by physicians, nurses. We're even using them in insurance um, around utilization review type products and trying to make determinations about appropriateness of care and treatment. Um, you know, clinical decision support. That is a thing and it, it continues to grow and improve. And I, it, it just adds so much more value, um, not just for the clinician, to your point, you can make better decisions faster, but for patients, because for patients, it really makes um, a difference. This might be slightly <clears throat> controversial. When you see a claim, um, and you see the numbers associated with it, what part of you is uh, triggered? Is it the nurse? Is it the data scientist? Or is it the businesswoman? You know, I think what I love most about it is the blend of it is um, what what really excites me is when the data informs and you look at the result and you step back and just really kind of look at the output. What it does for me is I look at it and say, that makes sense. That makes sense. It sort of like pulls all the pieces together, actually. I don't feel um, conflicted. I think that conflict occurs early when you're, you know, when you're trying to build the models and you're working with the data scientist and, and using domain knowledge um, to inform the data scientist, because it goes the other way too, doesn't it? Um, and there's a lot of work, a lot of questions that go into that work, very detailed. Um, but when you get to the other side of it, and where we are today, and you look at what the data informed um, in combination with the nurse's expertise, you look at the outcome and say, that makes sense. And here's why that makes sense. And it actually makes it, in my view, much easier to explain. I think it's much easier to explain to another person when you're using a result that's data informed as opposed to um, coming up with it on your own based on your own clinical expertise. And why I say that, it's not to say, you know, you explain it by saying, well, this is data based in data. No, no. What I mean is to really be able to understand the rationale around it because when you, it makes sense. So explaining the rationale is easier, the rationale for each uh, type of care that you would recommend. It's easier to explain the rationale for every each and everything. Can I ask this too? How has the access to data in real time, right? Because it's not just the doctors, the caregivers, and the healthcare workers that have access to data. How has it changed the healthcare patient insurer relationship when 
the patient also has access to similar amounts of data. Now, they may not have a data lake or data scientist on their side, but they can still access a ton of data as well and help them make at least to get a better understanding of where they stand too, right? In other words, they can look up the same stats that you can at some level. How has that changed that relationship? I think it gives patients more confidence because if you, if, if as a patient, you know, and I have to say, this is one of the things um, about the Affordable Care Act. You know, we don't talk about Affordable Care Act as much as we used to, but that was all about um including the patient as a stakeholder. That was an important principle of ACA is patient as stakeholder and patient owning their data, right? As a patient, this health data and this health information is mine. That alone is empowering. It gives you um, confidence. And as a patient, you don't, in, in the past, uh, you didn't have any information really to inform about your condition or uh, prognosis or treatment guidelines, what you should expect. And today, you know, having that information provide uh, allows for a more informed patient. A more informed patient is going to understand, to your point, there are options. That's why you can have five different people five different doctors might recommend a few different things and not all wrong, but there are, you know, there's more than one way to approach a diagnosis. And if the patient has that information, then they can choose. It gives them more choice, more autonomy around their own health experience. And do you see generational differences in the way that people react to the access to that data and the input of technology into this whole process, right? In other words, if there's a doctor or a nurse who's been, let's just say, at it for a while, and then somebody new coming in, that their reaction to the way they can use that data and that technology is different? Uh, you know, I can't say I have any direct experience with that since um, my product is more uh, I'm working with insurance adjusters and attorneys and, and those kinds of people. And I have less direct contact with providers. Um, but what I can say for claim organizations, providing that level of information, um, I can give you an example um, where there was a physician who recommended uh, as his his expertise around um, an exposure to mercury, and as an expert, it was his opinion that um, a group of people who were exposed would have organ failure. Uh, that was his conclusion that everyone would have organ failure and die. But what we saw in the data when we found 126 similar, and this is the life cycle of, right, a condition. Um, and the this was a class of people, about 40 people that had this exposure. We didn't see out of 126 similar claims, we didn't see one death due to or, organ failure. In fact, we didn't even see any organ failure. And so... It was very interesting because we were able to 
you know, so when the carrier came to us with this expectation that each of these claims to settle them would be one to one and a half million dollars for reasons that the medical care was going to be very significant uh, for organ failure. And when we did not find any of that, we were able to inform our customer uh, that we don't see this. Uh, what we do see is that the pattern of care in the data is consistent with the pattern of care that you see among these individuals and that that pattern continues. And so the good news is it's not a fatalistic story, right? For those individuals, maybe they're, they're going to get less money in their settlement. Maybe they're not going to get a million and a half now because, you know, we're not anticipating the costs of organ failure, but you know, it was a good news because what would you rather have? A million dollars and wake up every day knowing you're going to die of organ failure? Or would you like to have less and know that you're going to live full life and still do the things that you enjoy? And I think that, you know, that was the, the happy ending to that. Um, we were able to inform, right? The data was able to inform these individuals that, we under we we respect the expert's opinion, but the data says a different story. It's a more positive story. In the insurance value chain, you know, where do you get pushback? Because in insurance, a loss is a good thing. So where do you get pushback and where, where are you easily adopted? We get pushback um, and it's improving, but largely just people's personal discomfort with technology, right? The, the decision makers, uh, those who would be the decision makers, if they're not comfortable with machine learning, data intelligence, or they're not comfortable with this use case, because it's new and it's different and it's not what I've done before. It's not the way it's done. Um, that, that can be a barrier. That can be a barrier. So there's, uh, it's definitely an education, but the good news is, um, and Reno, you know this as well, there's been so much education provided in the last you know seven years. Um, we are starting to see a much greater acceptance and even an excitement around data analytics and the use of it that um, the industry is getting more comfortable. And so that's good. You just, you know, it's a process. It's a process for them as well. It's it's funny that you say that because that's exactly what I was going to ask you is how has it changed? So, and so that's, you can see me smiling, but I'm, I'm so happy she asked that because I'm really curious because You've you've been at this from multiple angles, right? And remember earlier I asked you, did you ever expect to be a data scientist, right? But you're also like you've changed so many things in your own in the way you interface with the industry, with the healthcare industry, with the insurance industry that that supports it, and also with the providers that do this, right? But on top of that, you're you've also become an entrepreneur as well. So you're struggling with all these things at a, at the same time. 
And I'm curious how that plays into it. In other words, eight years ago, approximately when you started CareBridge and today, like what are some of the differences in not just the reactions that you get, but in your ability to understand what it takes to actually build a business from scratch? <laughs> well, um, my response to that question is it's the most exciting thing and the most terrifying thing I've ever done. <laughs> it is both terrifying and the most exciting, like it's just exhilarating, um, but it's terrifying. So it's like you're on this constant, um, you know, you're on a roller coaster. Constantly. For sure. Yeah. And again, there are so many components here, right? And we have to be, I think I, I want to be really explicit about this. Look, I've started my own company too, four or five years into it. And the stuff that I know today is very different than the stuff that I knew four or five years ago. But I will say this, I'm curious if you think that the market reacts to you differently because of your gender as well. In other words, when a woman walks into the room and says, I have all this data, I've done all this analysis. Is there a little bit of a pejorative response around, you know, you used to have used to do this thing, which is completely unrelated to this. And now you're telling me you're a data scientist and you know this better than we do. And do you feel like there's a discount in the way they respect you because you're a female as well? And how do you handle all that? Because it's all mixed into one thing, right? You know what I mean? I do. Um, that I, I will have to say is um, the most challenging aspect of being an entrepreneur in this property and casualty space that I did not foresee. Um, for example, um, we are still a bootstrapped company. Uh, we released our first product in 2016. So you can see how long that's been. And um, my efforts to get funded, um, not for lack of actually having a product that works and we can demonstrate how it works and we have testimonials and uh, so forth. But, you know, I learned like, why can't I, why am I not getting funding? And then I saw Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey and other reports that less than 3% of women-owned um, insure tech or technology companies are getting funding. So right away, you know, I just pivoted to, well, those odds are pretty low. <laughs> I just need to focus on sales. But then to your point, it is. There's a uh, double whammy. I do feel some that it's harder in, in the sense that insurance um, leadership, the leadership in insurance is largely male dominant. And I can't, I have to say, I've had a lot of support from um, male leaders that I've worked with who've given me a lot of support, but there's also, uh, there's a kind of a, a, um, vision that people have of an entrepreneur, which is a young male in a t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> and so if you're not like 27 in t-shirt and jeans, what do you know about technology? And so that's that image. I think that image um, sort of interferes with uh, the way people think about who you know, my capabilities or the capabilities of the company. Yeah. And it's weird, it, it's weird, because right? And I want to make an equivalency here. Look, one of the companies in which I invested in out here 
the guy who runs it, and he's been at it for 10 years now, but 10 years ago, even though he was 40, he probably he looked super young. And he told me he used to wear glasses into meetings just so people thought he was older. He was struggling with this too, but you have this added factor. And this is why I want to point this out, because not just are you trying to change the way an, an entire industry interacts with itself and uses data in real time, right? You're trying to also work with insurance and the medical profession at the same time, the healthcare profession, but also struggling as an entrepreneur, which in and of itself is so hard. But now you're also, you don't fit the profile of some dude wearing like, you know, Crocs, jeans, and a t-shirt too. How do you, just how do you manage all that? And how do you keep a, an attitude that says, I don't care, I'm just going to keep going? You know, I really do believe that authenticity, authenticity comes through. And I also find that the storytelling, when you, when you really uh, are able to explain to people um, how this is different and real with real examples, you know, like, like what the one that I gave around the mercury toxicity um, when you're able to tell those kinds of stories, people are interested in those kinds of stories. It's, it's interesting to them, but with it comes an education. It is education. And I've accepted the fact that um, as, as a, an entrepreneurial business, that my expectation is first uh, you know, I'm branding a company, trying to brand its reputation. And then secondly, I have to educate the market. And that just takes time, you know, educating, educating people. Um, the more you have the conversation, as we can see, five, six years later, people are starting to understand. It's starting to make sense to them now. And the market is starting to use it and being in the right place, you know, uh, uh, pan the pandemic was an added benefit uh, to technology for reasons that um, for all the naysayers, you know, look at telemedicine, suddenly overnight it was needed. But for years, everybody wanted to fight telemedicine, fight telemedicine. It was, you know, nobody wanted it. They, they had every excuse not to use it until they needed it. And similarly, right? And that has happened for insurance. You know, it was a petting zoo and you people would go through the insure tech conferences and just sort of look at all the little insure techs and say, isn't that nice? Isn't that cute? Until they needed it, <laughs> which is, you know, their claim, for example, the claim shops are pretty wrecked. I can, I, you know, I will say that. Claim, claim departments are really challenged with staffing, knowledge gaps, uh, which obviously um, has a waterfall effect of you're not managing claims. <laughs> you, you can't, you, you really can't. It's, you know, really a, a challenging environment. And so what are you going to do? You need to start, you have to consider technology solutions that can inform but also provide tools uh, for claim adjusters to quickly uh, understand their claim, uh, take care of the relevant things they need to take care of, and then move on to the next claim, right? Or 
like we've seen uh, somebody leaves and a client claims will sit on a desk with no one looking at them for months. Uh, you know, that's just not sustainable. So uh, solutions like CareBridge International and others, you know, are going to drive this next generation um, claim process and how to actually maintain the integrity of caring for people who have had these injuries and not letting them fall through the cracks. What's the implication of open AI and even just the prominence now of stuff like chat GPT and GPT-3 on the claims process? And do you have any visibility at least or an idea where you think that's going to go and how you think that's going to impact that? Oh, there's just so many use cases for that. Um, I mean, we're already dabbling in it. We already use natural language processing for uh, records, you know, and that alone is... Um, uh, the data points that you can extract out of this non-structured data and the value of it is incredible. But when you are able to start to, I mean, if you can just ask a question um, and the chat GPT can give you an answer, that's an informed answer. Uh, that is a, you know, or some that's based on informed, you know, data. Um, I think that will, that it, there's so many use cases for that, but for a claim person, you know, there's definitely an opportunity there to improve on the efficiencies of of managing um, outcomes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'll give you a, I'll give you an example just in my own stuff. If I have to take a transcript of this and come up with a quote, I could read through a transcript, right? So just doing a transcript alone would take like an hour to do. But if I had to read through the transcript, it would take about two or three hours to do that. And then if I want to find a quote from it, it would just take more time. So you talk about three to five hours worth of work. I can feed that into ChatGPT3 and it can give me, it can pull out quotes and tell me who said it, you know, in like 15 seconds. It's just insane. So to me, and, that, and that's simple. There's no like real thought behind that. But for what you're doing, claims analysis, go back and look at years worth of claims analysis, then analyze them and say, well, actually it should look like this. It's just got to be a boon for the way that artificial intelligence can process that stuff. But I will say this, and I'm curious about your opinion here, because I'm a big believer that whether it's a claims adjuster or an insurance provider, or even a physician, that at no point do people want other people removed from the process, right? It's just going to superpower the people that are good at their job and eliminate the people that kind of didn't care about their job anyway. Does that make sense? And do you feel the same way? It does. Um, it does, Michael. I think, you know, I actually ran a little poll on LinkedIn because early on, you know, I wanted to understand um, sort of attitudes toward AI. And, you know, what I learned is largely there's a fear, um, right? And when it came to actual, you know, when you're working with a, a, a real human, you know, this is about a person's life and the care that they need. How much can we really trust AI? Uh, that's the fear. And, and the liability, or how does that hurt my reputation? Or another fear is the robot is going to take my job. You know, we heard that a lot. Um, I don't, you know, your tool is going to eliminate 
you know, my job or the role of my nurses in my company. Um, and that's just not true. That's just not true. But that is a, that fear is a reality that people have. And so we have to acknowledge it. And, you know, that's what we've done. And interesting, because more recently, I, I was mentioning, I put this poll out on LinkedIn and asked the question, you know, um, do you, trust? Are you comfortable with AI informing on care, a person or a combination? And largely, you know, 80% preferred that combination of data and the human. And that's our, you know, that's our approach too. We don't, we don't believe that the machine replaces the human. It only enhances, it provides, it informs by giving more context around a given claim to help you make an informed decision, that data-driven decision-making. So it isn't um, entirely subjective. You don't want it to be entirely subjective or entirely machine. But if you're able to blend the two, you're going to get a much more realistic uh, output and you're able to get a better result. I'm just yeah, smiling. You're smiling. I'm just smiling. <laughs> I'm smiling. And I'll tell you why, because I'm trying to come up with an example that people would understand. And here's the, here's the thing that I've come up with. If I go to a fancy restaurant, right? It would be so easy for a piece of artificial intelligence to tell me exactly how my steak should be cooked and what, which French wine to pair with it. But I want a sommelier to be there to tell me, should I do this one or that one? And so for that person to say, well, when I was in France last summer and I did this thing and tasted that thing, I know this one's going to be a little bit better. It just makes me feel like it's a better interaction. And I think if you extrapolate that into the healthcare thing, it's the same thing, whether it's a claims process or something about your, your medical well-being. Like I said, I just want someone to be there and say, the data tells me this, but here's what I think. I think you should do this type of thing because in my experience, this has always worked out better. And I think it just makes the patients feel better and the claims adjuster feels better and everybody in the process feel better. Is that okay? Absolutely. I mean, and I think too, because, you know, we are human. We are human. We want to be connected with other humans. We learned that through the pandemic, how challenging that was to be connected from other people. It's, it's um, you know, created all kinds of problems around mental health being disconnected. And we need that, you know, that's how we're made. And so when you have a person, a caring voice on the other end of the phone, who is helping you with something that's very important to you, because you have to remember you know, for a lot of these people, this is a crisis for them. This is a crisis for them, right? It's not a claim. It's a crisis for them. And so having a person on the other end of that phone that you feel some connection with that has your best interests, and even if they're using data to inform, uh, there's nothing more valuable than that. You can't replace that human connection in this process. The machine just can't do that. I feel like I want to end on that note. Is that okay with both of you? Deborah Watkins, founder and CEO of CareBridge International. That was truly awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>